Hello, this is Andrea Walton, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Friday, April 7th, and Saturday, April 8th issues of the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Earlier in the week, there was a tragedy discovered in Carleton, and there's a motive sought in a murder-suicide. Investigators are hoping the electronic devices found miles from the scene will give them clues as to why a Lockport father murdered his teenage son and then killed himself in a horrible and shocking murder-suicide in Carleton last Sunday. Henry F. Spoon, Jr., age 39, and his son Sean Spoon, age 14, were found in an apple orchard off Kendrick Road on Sunday, prompting an intensive investigation that revealed some details, but no trigger that prompted Spoon to shoot his son in the head with a two twenty-three caliber rifle and slash his throat. It's horrible and shocking as to why this guy would do that to his son. Orleans County District Attorney Joseph Cardone said. Sean Spoon's mother traveled from South Carolina and met with Cardone and Sheriff Christopher Bork on Wednesday. Cardone said she was unable to offer a motive and has been living in South Carolina for 12 years. Henry Spoon had custody of his son. She didn't really have a lot to say, Cardone said. She was very distraught and didn't give us a lot of insight. Spoon did have mental health issues. He suffered from PTSD after a stint in the Marines, where he served a tour in the Middle East and had a few relatively minor run-ins with the police in the past. Investigators determined that Spoon and his son had been in central New York earlier in the day on Sunday, stopping at a McDonald's in Canastota, Madison County. Cardone said video of the stop revealed nothing of importance. Electronic devices, however, were found about three miles from Kendrick Road, they include phones and tablets along with other items. The devices are being analyzed in hopes of determining a motive. Quite a sad story, really. Well, everybody's getting all excited about the solar eclipse that's going to take place next year. Three minutes of darkness. The Genesee County Chamber of Commerce has started preparation for a dark afternoon about a year from now. At least three minutes and 42 seconds of darkness during a total solar eclipse. However, the celebrations and expected influx of two to 300,000 people into the region from Friday, April 5th to Monday, April 8th of 2024. It's very important that we're a part of this event with you and appreciate it, Chamber of Commerce President Brian Cousins said Thursday to the county and municipal representatives. Also, there was a creative team behind a promotional illustration the county will use over the next year to celebrate the total eclipse. During the event, county leaders and local officials unveiled the county's commemorative poster, branded ISO certified solar glasses and community outreach kickoff. A website created for the coming eclipse, geneseetheeclipse.com, went online Thursday as well. On April 8, 2024, Genesee County will be in the path of totality for the total solar eclipse lasting the 3 minutes and 42 seconds. The next solar eclipse in this region isn't expected for 126 years. Cousins touted the county's distance from larger municipalities and said it would be darker than those places. We're 30 minutes outside of any big urban setting where the streetlights will come on, he said. We have a lot of rural areas where people can visit and gather to host watch parties and create different family environments. A lot of our county roads are easy in and out with, a, with Route 90, the thruway, Route 77, 63, and Route 20. All of our rural roads are very inviting for this event. County Legislature Chairwoman Ro Rochelle Stein 
said the planning over the next year will be fun and people will get to enjoy what's going to happen. Stay tuned for a lot more activity and a lot more information coming in the near future, she said. Participate, 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 and throw your own spin onto it, she said. The county unveiled the poster it's using to promote the event. The campaign poster features illustrations of a dairy cow wearing solar glasses, symbolizing Genesee County's rich agricultural heritage. In front of the eclipse sun, and a row of the small town storefronts that represent its downtown communities. The poster's dark, starlit sky and tagline, see it where the skies are darker, references the rural nature of Genesee County and the lack of light pollution that it will experience during the eclipse compared to larger cities. The creative work was directed by Glenn Clark of Crafting a Brand and illustrated by freelance artist Andy Redout of Honeyoy Falls. Freelance artist Andy Redout said Glenn Clark of Crafting a Brand, creative director for the campaign, told him he needed some original artwork. He said he worked with Clark and the creative team to come up with the idea. Redout said in advertising, a lot of people buy stock art as a quick way out when creating art for a promotional campaign. What Glenn and the team did is we created original artwork, he said. It gets everyone excited about it. It'll stick around for a long time. Clark said the county's agricultural heritage in the artwork, the city and towns and villages, needed to be represented, as did dark skies. While the chamber is preparing very hard over the course of the next year and has prepared a lot, rest assured, Genesee County government and local municipalities are also going to be preparing, said Genesee County Manager Matt Landers. There will be safety considerations taken into account. The local law enforcement from all levels will be taking part. Genesee County Emergency Management, Genesee County Highway Department, and local municipalities are already having kickoff meetings and planning to ensure that the roads are safe and we make this as fun of an experience as possible. Cousins said Genesee County is incredibly fortunate to be along the path of totality for the 2024 event. We anticipate our community businesses and organizations will come out in full force to put on weekend-long eclipse-related events and programming leading up to the big day. We are enthusiastic about potentially welcoming thousands of visitors into our area of western New York, he said. We are just over a year away from the occasion and are already counting down the days. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event that everyone will be able to experience together. Well, let's certainly hope we don't have cloudy days that weekend, because that could certainly diminish all of our spirits, I would think. We've got a couple of upcoming events locally for some good chow by the sounds of it. The Knights of Columbus are planning a chicken barbecue. A takeout chicken barbecue will be conducted April 23rd by, by Our Lady of Batavia Knights of Columbus. The barbecue will take place at 10 a.m. to sold out at the rear of St. Mary's Church on Ellicott Street. The cost is $14 with proceeds to benefit local charities. Meals will include a half chicken, coleslaw, potatoes, and a dinner roll. Pre-sale tickets are preferred by calling Mike at 585-343-3810. Tickets are also on sale for a pulled pork dinner in Oakfield. A drive-through pulled pork dinner will be conducted April 15th at Oakfield United Methodist Church. Meal cost is $15. They will include a pulled pork sandwich, coleslaw, baked beans, potato chips, a drink, and dessert. Meals will be available from 4 to 6 p.m. You can call 585-948-5550 and leave a message or email oakfieldumc at gmail.com for tickets. We have a picture of Medina Mustang's Winter Guard 
their varsity squad and also their JV squad. The Mustangs score in the Winter Guard. The Medina Mustangs Winter Guard recently performed well in the Northeast Color Guard Circuit Championships. This year's event was conducted this past Saturday at Gates Chilai High School, officials said in a news release. It included 22 guard units from New York, Pennsylvania, and Canada and drew about 600 spectators. Medina's JV guard competed in the cadet class and came in third place with a score of 71.68. Medina's varsity guard took fifth place, the SA class with a score of 79.72. Now that the winter guard season is done, the Medina marching band will begin preparing for its spring season, which will include parades and competitions in various festivals. The band's parade music will include a number of pieces from Rochester jazz musician Chuck Mangione. Obituaries in Friday's paper included Robert Victor Chapman, age 80, from Byron, and Ronald Porter, age 82, who passed away at Gateway Home. Moving on to sports in Friday's paper. We have a couple of local athletes who are highlighted. First is Batavia grad Hale headed to Fort Lauderdale. Following his stellar career on the baseball diamond at Batavia High School, Alex Hale's path led him to nearby Niagara County Community College to continue his career. And while Hale likely hasn't gotten the most opportunities on the mound that he would have liked to at this point for the Thunderwolves, he has continued to grind, and that grind has led him to another level. Hale will be next attending the University of Fort Lauderdale to continue his baseball career. The University of Fort Lauderdale competes in the South Region of Division I of the National Christian College Athletic Association. Last season, the Eagles advanced to the NCCAA Championship Series, where they fell to Concordia University of Michigan. Going down south to play baseball has always been one of my biggest goals in my athletic career, Hale said. I could never have gotten to this point without my family, and all of my coaches, along with Niagara County Community College, have been great to me. I am very excited to get down there and play some ball and see what it's all about. A freshman at Niagara County Community College, Hale appeared in two games and picked up a win. In three innings, he allowed just two hits, no earned runs, and he struck out three while he walked on while he walked on as NCC finished at 49-11. This season, NCCC is off to an impressive 18-2 start, though Hale has yet to see action on the mound. Hale was a key member of the sectional winning Batavia squad in 2019 during his sophomore season when the Blue Devils captured their first Section 5 block in more than 20 years. That season, he struck out 52 in 47 innings, pitched with a solid ERA of 3.23, while he also hit 375 in the Class B1 championship game against Geneva. Hale was one out away from a no-hitter and finished with a one-hit shutout with 10 strikeouts in a 9-0 victory. After he missed out on his junior season due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Hale came back as a senior and hit 386 with an on-base percentage of 471 and a slugging percentage of 591. He finished that season with seven doubles, a triple, 10 runs batted in, and eight runs scored. 
On the mound, he was 2-1 with an EAR of 2.92 and an opponent's batting average of 182, while he struck out 17 in 12 innings pitched. Last summer, Hale got the opportunity to showcase his talent for the hometown Batavia Muckdogs of the Perfect Game Collegiate Baseball League. In seven games with the Muckdogs, Hale has 1-0 with an ERA of 3.46. In 13 innings pitched, he allowed just 10 hits while he walked 5 and struck out 10. In his one start on the hill for Batavia, Hill tossed a gem against Jamestown in a 6-1 victory. Hale allowed a run in the bottom of the first, but was then outstanding the rest of the way, tossing five shutout frames to close out his night. The righty threw 52 of his 85 pitches for strikes. This season, the University of Fort Lauderdale is currently 23-15 and is led by head coach Billy Glessner. Glessner took over the University of Fort Lauderdale program in 2021 after six seasons guiding Pinellas Park High School. Glessner set the bar for the UFTL baseball program high during its inaugural season in 2022, finishing the year as NCCAA World Series runners-up with a 35-25 overall record. Glessner mentored a pair of NCCAA All-Americans and first-team honoree Josh Crawford, the NCCAA South Region Pitcher of the Year, and second-team member Wilbert Vargas, while the team also had two NCCAA Scholar-Athletes, 10 NCCAA All-South Region participants, and one South Region Pitcher of the Year. Also highlighted with a storied career is Alexander High School alumnus Nick Young. He wanted to leave his mark during his final season as a member of the Gannon University wrestling team. As a graduate student, Young had already piled up a plethora of achievements throughout a lengthy career at the high school and collegiate level. Having finished as runner-up at the New York State Public High School Championships, his senior season at Alexander, and following that up with a successful run, at Gannon, which included a top eight finish at the 2020-21 NCAA Division II National Championships, earning him All-American status for the first time in a Golden Knights singlet. This season, Young doubled down, dropping in weight while earning All-American honors for the second time in his career, finishing seventh at 149 pounds at the National Championship meet. During his final season at Gannon, Young cut weight to make 149 pounds after having competed at 157 a season ago. His hard work and commitment paid off with a second-team All-PSAC selection, his second consecutive and his second All-American All -American status. Sorry about that. The former Trojans grappler led Gannon in wins during the 2022-23 campaign, finishing the year 29-7. This season, Young placed second at the Super Region 1 Championships before his top eight finish at the national meet. He finished his career at Gannon with a final mark of 82-44. For his career with the Golden Knights, Young was a two-time NCAA Division II All-American, a four-time national qualifier, a regional champion, and a two-time PSAC All-Star. He also finished an impressive high school career with an astonishing record of 218-29. Four sectional championships, a runner-up finish at the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Championships, and a fifth-place finish at the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Championships. 
Young's impressive resume at both the high school and collegiate level set his career apart as one of the most accomplished the GLOW region has seen throughout its long history of producing successful athletes on the mats. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Moving to Saturday's paper, we open with a story about one heck of a fire that took place on Good Friday in downtown Medina. This happens to be my hometown, and I actually was at the scene of the fire. Friday morning inferno. Investigation was set to begin Friday into a four-alarm blaze, which spurred a major response from area fire departments. Sitting on the stoops of Main Street businesses, village residents watched as torrents of water were sprayed on the building to douse the blaze that appeared to have wrecked its interior and possibly the entire structure. The building at 201 Main Street housed a carpet store and is made of historical Medina sandstone. It's well known and familiar to area residents being located next to the village's old theater and across from Medina Police Station. The location was cordoned off with yellow do not cross tape, which went down the street up to the Country Club Family Restaurant as firefighters worked to extinguish the flames. Lieutenant Steve Cooley of the Medina Fire Department said the department received a call at 10.49 a.m. about a smell of something electrical burning. Firefighters were dispatched at 10.50 a.m. and arrived at the same time, since the fire department is right around the corner from where the fire took place. Upon seeing smoke emerging from the building's chimney, the first responders at that point called in a structural fire and called for mutual aid. Second and third alarms followed. By 2 p.m., they were already on their fourth alarm for mutual aid. Three ladder trucks were pouring streams of water into the building from above. Firefighters had gone into action as soon as they arrived. Crews immediately rescued an individual from a second-story window, Cooley said. Two people live at the location above the business, he said. One was home at the time, and the owner who was rescued refused transport to the hospital and is with his family. There are no injuries reported as of Friday afternoon. The roof had already collapsed, and the higher floors were threatening to collapse as well. Structural engineers will be coming in to do an evaluation on the structure. Cooley asked anyone driving around the village to stay out of the corridor and to conserve water. Those living on the east side of the village were asked to keep their windows closed and children inside if they were encountering smoke. Cooley said the hardest part about battling the fire was water. There's only so much in the system, and firefighters were using every available amount. We actually set up two drafting sites, Cooley said. We're drafting out of the Oak Orchard Creek in two spots. Another drafting site had been set up to the south. The Shelby Fire Department set up those operations, Cooley said. We got a half-mile hose where the creek goes under the canal. We'll draft it out of that site as well for the water operations on the back side. About 150 firefighters were at the scene as of Friday afternoon. The state fire team will be assisting the Orleans County Fire Investigation Unit to determine the blaze's cause. Merle Maple has a record year. 
Longtime producer made more than 12,000 gallons of syrup. Merley Maple has produced a lot of syrup over the decades, but this year takes the cake. The long-running maple farm produced a record 12,800 gallons of syrup in a season, which ended on Tuesday. Chalk it up to perfect weather and the farm's continuous expansion. We made syrup from January 13th to April 4th, said Lyle Murley, one of four partners in the operation. We boiled 47 days this year. A typical year is 25 days. There were no 60-plus degree days, and with no bitter cold temperatures, the trees were not frozen, so we had many good runs at 36 to 38 degrees, he continued. We also put in two new vacuum pumps and had tighter systems so our production was higher. The Murley family has been making maple syrup and related products for more than a century. It has expanded steadily over the years and has also been known for its innovation. The operation started using tubing in 1958 instead of the traditional metal buckets and typically produces about 9,000 gallons of syrup in an average year. The farm now has 23,000 taps, which is also the most it's ever had, Murley said. A total of 15% of this year's syrup will be made into maple sugar candy and 5% will be used for maple cream, he said. Another 5% will be used for granulated maple sugar with 8% voted to barbecue sauce, hot sauce, mustard, and similar products. Other maple producers still have three weeks of production in the North Country because they only started making syrup around March 20th, Murley said. It's too soon to know production industry-wide, but Western New York had a good year. Good production appears to be the case statewide this season. Executive Director Helen Thomas of the New York State Maple Association said the group has 600 members statewide, including 90 in western New York and 43 in Wyoming County. New York State maple production this year seems to be the best in the last 75 years, she said. That being said, folks in higher elevations are still making syrup, so the final tally is still out. Certainly in western and central New York, all the informal reports I have from members is that the syrup is excellent quality and the weather was optimum this year for high yields for everyone. Murley Maple is run by a partnership including Lyle and Dottie Murley, Eileen Downs, and Christina Copeland. Check www.murleymaple.com for more information. Cast Isle Bear is among the New York's heaviest. A 462-pound bear was among the heaviest reported statewide during the 2022 hunting season. The male bear was harvested by a bow hunter in Cast Isle, according to the State Department of Environmental Conservation's annual bear hunting report. It ranked fifth statewide and was among five bears taken in Wyoming County. The other bears were shot with rifles. They included three in Eagle and one in Pike. In the meantime, Livingston County ranked second in the Glow region with three bears harvested. Each was taken by bow hunters. No bear kills were reported in Genesee and Orleans counties. The Glow region totals were dwarfed by other nearby counties. A total of 38 bears were taken in Allegheny County, along with 46 each in Cattaraugus and Steuben counties. A total of 1,318 bears were taken statewide during the 2022 hunting season. The biggest reported was a 520-pound female killed by a bow hunter in Windsor, located in Broome County. In the meantime, the DEC is offering advice to prevent negative encounters with bears. 
Black bears emerging from winter dens have depleted fat reserves and will search extensively for easily obtainable calorie-dense foods, the EC officials said in a news release. They will readily use available food sources and repeat access can make them bolder, leading to an increase in problem behavior around homes and residential areas, especially when natural food sources are scarce. Area residents who feed birds in areas where bears are advised to begin emptying and cleaning up spilt seed from feeders and let nature feed the birds through autumn, DEC officials said. People are also advised to secure garbage cans in a sturdy building, clean or remove all residual grease and food from grills, and store pet and livestock food indoors. The DEC recommends New York residents should also consider installing electric fences around chicken coops or apiaries to protect flocks and hives. Feeding bears unintentionally is illegal. I'm sorry, feeding bears intentionally is illegal. Unintentional feeding can create problems for the surrounding community, along with the bear if it becomes a threat to people or property. By removing and securing food sources that might attract bears, the public is helping keep bears away from people, homes, and neighborhoods, which helps keep bears healthy, wild, and safe, the DEC said. The public is also advised to remove any unnatural food attractants and encourage neighbors to do the same. You can check www.dec.ny.gov slash DOCS slash wildlife.pdf for the entire bear hunting report. I did not realize we had that many bears in New York State. I guess I will uh, watch where I walk in the woods. There's a nice article about the new historian who was in office in Leroy. Lynn Belusco's new historian office at the Leroy Village Hall is surrounded by history. I'm so tickled to be in this building because it is a Claude Bragdon building, she said, referring to the noted architect. The village has the original plans for it. So one of my projects, and I already lined that up, is to go to the University of Rochester where they have Claude Bragdon drawings. I want to take them and compare them and see if there is more information on them. The move started after New York State approved the combination of the Leroy Town and Village Historians into one role. Originally, Belusco's office was going to be in the Town Hall at 48 Main Street, but that office was not handicapped accessible and parking was difficult. So the Village offered space in its building at 3 West Main Street on the corner of Routes 5 and 19. This was the locker room for the women on the police force, and they had to give it up, Belusco said. I promised Greg Kellogg, the Leroy police chief, to do a history on the police department, which is fascinating. She said it became important for Leroy to have a police department when automobiles became commonplace. The police force started growing, and then Prohibition hit, and Belusco said she's looking into its part in that. In addition to the room being used as a women's locker room for the police, it was an interrogation room. Before it was a part of the police station, Belusco's office and the former courtroom housed the village's fire trucks. The tower is essential for this building because when the fire department was here, that was when they had canvas hose, she said. They would take the fire hose and attach it to a winch and pull it up into the tower so it could dry. Otherwise, it would get moldy and disintegrate. People in the community donated money to put the clock in the tower. The building itself likewise shows Bragdon's influence. Bragdon was a well-known architect out of Rochester, but the Leroy Village Municipal Building was one of the last buildings he worked on. Of course, there is a tie-in with Jell-O, 
because Cora Woodward was the one that made sure the village hired Claude Bragdon to do the work, she said. She also made sure the land was available to put it here. So there are some interesting stories there. The municipal building was built in 1912 or 1913. The original village hall and fire department building on Bank Street burned down around 1909. Then Cora Woodward, of the well-known Jello family, wanted to make sure the community had a nice municipal building. She thought it was important to do that, Belusco said. So she went to the village fathers and said, I will acquire the property and you have to hire a good architect. I don't want just any building. The village board at the time hemmed and hawed before finally agreeing. The Leroy Village Municipal Building was actually featured in the Saturday Evening Post. And in the vault, the village found a couple of prints. The Saturday Evening Post they might be able to make available for those who might like one. Leroy is rich in history, Blusco said. I think most communities are rich in their history. Our history kind of starts in the late 1700s. But what does Belusco's job entail? A municipal historian's job does not include collecting. They aren't supposed to be a museum. However, they do have a lot of books, and Belusco said they have a good history of the community. Another thing that comes up in my purview is that towns in New York State have to oversee abandoned cemeteries, and there are seven in Leroy, she said. It is a major issue because the towns don't have the money to take care of them. All they do is mow them once or twice a year, and that's it. But if people are looking for people buried, they would be able to come here. We would be able to at least send them in the right direction. Some other municipal historians do record management, but Belusco said she doesn't have the staff or energy to do that. It's not required of a municipal management. She explained records management has to do with all the government records the municipality might have, such as meeting minutes and court records. The other thing is that people have to keep in mind is that today's society, people moved around. Belusco said, at one time you were born, you lived, and you died in the same community as your family. That's not the case anymore. So when you start talking about the history of the community, you cannot assume people know. They may have only lived in the area for a few years. Municipal historians also are charged with being involved with preservation issues and should maintain records of surveys and state and national landmark designations. Belusco is preparing a special section in the files per for preservation issues and topics. History is not written in stone, Belusco said. It is ever-changing. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Mercy EMS Ambulance is going to serve Orleans County. The State Department of Health has formally approved transfer of Central Orleans Volunteer Ambulance's Certificate of Need to Mercy Flight EMS. The change follows Mercy Flight to operate its ground ambulance service in all of Orleans County and the town of Hamlin. The nonprofit agency continues to operate in Genesee and Niagara Counties and the town of Concord and village of Springville in Erie County. Until last Friday, we've been operating in Orleans County and the town of Hamlin under an agreement with COVA that allowed us to hire all of their former employees and staff their ambulances said Executive Vice President Scott Wooten of Mercy Flight in a news release. Now we can continue to provide high-quality, non-profit EMS service in these particular municipalities in our own right. Operationally, it really all boils down to a cosmetic change at this point, as we look to add our branding to vehicles and outfit COVA's former employees in Mercy Flight EMS uniforms. As an organization, though, the transfer of the certificate of need validates what Mercy Flight is trying to do and the way in which it tries to do that, he said. 
We believe that patient-focused, compassionate, nonprofit ambulance service can thrive, even in rural communities where limited access to health care can be a major risk factor for residents, Wooten said. Mercy Flight President Margaret Ferentino said Mercy Flight thanked the Big Lakes and Monroe Livingston Regional EMS Councils, as well as the State Department of Health Bureau of EMS. Just as importantly, we'd like to recognize COVA for over 40 years of dedicated service to their community and their efforts to ensure that the residents of Central Orleans County experience no lapse in ambulance coverage. We are really proud to have been able to hire COVA's dedicated employees and pick up the torch that they've been carrying for over four decades. There's a picture in the paper that many of you may remember. It's a picture of the old fiberglass big boy. It's under the heading of backward glances. On April 2nd, 1992, the Daily News took this photo of John Hodgins cleaning off the big boy statue that he had reportedly rescued from the trash years earlier. The statue had been hit by a car in front of the big boy restaurant on Main Street in Batavia on May 13, 1986. Hodgins, an avid collector of advertising memorabilia, restored the statue to its former glory. In another story from the Daily News archives, Hodgins said he acquired the statue in the 1990s after the restaurant had closed. In a 1995 interview, Hodgins said he had heard the statue was in the garage of a former restaurant employee. He contacted the man and the two worked out a business transaction, trading the statue for some sign work, as Hodgins was a sign painter and artist. Hodgins did have to make repairs to the statue, patching a hole in its chest, for example. He then airbrushed it and refurbished the statue. John's son, Mike Hodgins, said the statue was eventually sold and it is now somewhere in Pennsylvania. Batavia's Big Boy Restaurant was open about eight years, replacing another legendary Batavia eating spot, Carol's Restaurant, which closed in October 1983 after more than 13 years at 522 East Main Street. The most recognized symbol of the Big Boy franchise is the Big Boy statue, a smiling, chubby-cheeked lad clad in red and white overalls who stands vigil outside the company's restaurants. Batavia's Big Boy closed around 1990 and the restaurant's owner converted it into a Tully's sports bar and restaurant in 1991. I remember seeing that statue when I used to travel to Perry to visit my aunt and uncle. We have some local achievers at college. Two area students earn top RIT honors. Two Wyoming County residents have received the Rochester Institute of Technology's Outstanding Undergraduate Scholar Award. The award celebrates the top 1% of undergraduate students who achieve academic excellence while also giving back to the community through civic or volunteer work by conducting research or being engaged in a co-op or work in their field of study. More than 100 students were named Outstanding Undergraduate Scholars for the 2022-23 academic year. They included Mary Alice Ball of Strikersville, who is in the Chemical Engineering Program, and Abigail Bush of Perry, who is in the ASL English Interpretation Program. Award recipients were honored on March 23rd. Emma Baldwin is inducted into Phi Alpha Theta. Emma Baldwin of Medina has been inducted into the Nazareth chapter of the National Phi Alpha Theta History Honor Society. Phi Alpha Theta is a professional society whose mission is to promote the study of history through the encouragement of research, good teaching,
publication and the exchange of learning and ideas among historians. It seeks to bring students, teachers, and writers of history together for intellectual and social exchanges, which promote and assist historical research and publication by its members in a variety of ways. We got a picture of the local Genesee County 4-H Goat Club, and it's titled Genesee 4-Hers Get the Goat. The Genesee County 4-H Goat Club participated April 1st in the Regional 4-H Goat Bowl Contest at Oakfield, Alabama Central School. Goat Bowl is a game show style competition testing knowledge of goat facts. Questions can include about breeds, judging, nutrition, and more. The Genesee County Goat Club was very well represented at the event with 16 club members participating, Area 4-H officials said in a news release. The event attracted participants from across the region. Genesee County winners included first place senior team, Lily Hake, Riley Henning, Claire Mathis, and Brooke Friga. First place junior team, Ellie Mangino, Lila Baker, Riley Smith, and Levi Miller. Second place Cloverbud team was Jace Miller, Maya Mangino, and Lexton Baker. Honorable mention for the juniors was Juliette Miller, Liam Baker, Adeline Mangino, Eleanor Hudson, and Jamison Smith. Officials congratulated the winners and thanked GOAT Club leader Joanna Miller for all of her hard work organizing the event. The Genesee County 4-H program is a youth development program for youth age 5 to 18 years old. New 4-H youth members, adult volunteers, and clubs are always welcome to join. For information about how to join the Genesee County 4-H program, please contact the 4-H office at genesee4h at cornell.edu or 585-343-3040 extension 101. Obituaries in Saturday's paper included Pamela Ann Howe Dobbins. She passed away in Indian Trail, North Carolina at the age of 72. She was married in Batavia in 1971 to Gerald Ellingham and remarried in 1977 to David Howe from Byron. Karen Ruth Porter Verrican, age 79, she was born in Batavia. Anne Rothmeyer, formerly of Pavilion, passed away at the age of 77. Alice Dix, age 91, of Batavia. Moving to sports on Saturday's paper. Local baseball and softball teams head south. Each spring, several baseball and softball teams native to the Glow region head south to warmer locales where they enjoy a spring training of sorts as preparations are made for the upcoming Section 5 regular season up north. This spring, the Batavia baseball and softball teams, along with the Caledonia Mumford softball team, along with a few other area programs, enjoy the trip down the east coast. The Blue Devils baseball team traveled to Fort Pierce, Florida by way of a motor coach provided by Bedore Tours of Niagara Falls, which was in part funded by the team's fundraising efforts and contributions made by local businesses. Many thanks to John McGowan of American National Insurance, the David McCarthy Memorial Foundation, and the Michael Napoleon Foundation for the additional support towards the players' trip, said BHS baseball coach James Patrick. With the support of our administration, parents, local businesses, and fundraising efforts, we were able to take our varsity and JV teams for a second year to compete in scrimmages against some great teams. 
the Batavia softball team made its way to Vero Beach, Florida, where they enjoyed their time at the Jackie Robinson Training Complex. The Blue Devils would play their scrimmages at Cocoa Beach, enduring five grueling matchups against schools from Minnesota and Ohio. They were all upper quality teams with great pitching that will prepare us for our upcoming season, said BHS head coach James Fazio. Our team was very competitive and held our own in those scrimmages. We learned a lot about our team and improvements we have to make. The team's accommodations were provided by the Jackie Robinson Training Complex, which Fazio recalled as top-notch. The team was able to enjoy the many amenities the complex had to offer, said the Blue Devils head coach. We were able to travel to Fort Pierce to watch our boys' baseball program play a game, do some shopping, and enjoy a beach day on Friday on our last day. It was an incredible experience, one that the girls will remember forever. Cal Mum made the trip to Myrtle Beach for a week that included five scrimmages against programs from Western and Central New York, Portville, Corning, Randolph, Brighton, and Wayland Cohocton. The scrimmages down here were great because you can work on a lot of different things and get all the girls an opportunity to show their skills, said Caledonia Mumford head coach Dan Dickens, whose team rented a house and played at the Grandstand Classic at the North Myrtle Beach Sports Complex. Anytime you can get out and practice or play on play in great weather, it's going to be an advantage, he continued. I thought we had some really good offensive performances all week. Defense has been our Achilles heel the last couple seasons, and when we didn't play to our standard, it was usually due to our defense. But I think we took some huge strides and look forward to starting our games next week. I really like this group of seniors, and we have a great mix of younger girls and first-year varsity players who are hungry to get Cal Mom softball back to where it was a few years ago. Coach Patrick echoed Dickinson's sentiments, citing the various advantages of heading south during the milder, wetter period of the spring. We learned a lot about our team and what each player offers to this team, he said. There's so much more to the game of baseball that on many occasions it isn't covered up north due to the weather, which makes this trip so important. We improved upon many things baseball-related, but most importantly, we come home eager to start our season officially and make a sectional run. The Section 5 spring season will be in full swing this coming week. Taking his place, Letchworth grad Mike Nevinger reflects on being inducted into the Section 5 Wrestling Hall of Fame. Letchworth High School graduate Mike Nevinger put together one of the greatest wrestling careers in Section 5 in New York State history back in the mid-2000s. Now the former Indian star is rightly taking his place among the best of the best that the state has ever had to offer. The Section 5 Wrestling Hall of Fame recently announced the class of 2023 and the former local star, Nevinger, is leading the way of inductees. It's pretty special, Nevinger said. I mean, it's an honor to be selected. There's been a lot of great wrestlers coming out of the state, and there continues to be. So just to be associated with a group like that is pretty special. The 2023 Section 5 Wrestling Hall of Fame Banquet will be held at Red Fedley's Brookhouse on May 10th, and the names of the inductees will be added to the Hall of Fame plaque located in the lobby of the Brookhouse. Since the Section 5 Wrestling Hall of Fame was started in 1994, 167 people have been inducted. Nevinger, who was on the mats during one of the most powerful times of Livingston Conference Wrestling, was a leader for an impressive Indian squad during his day and one of the best to ever come out of the LCAA. Nevinger was a five-time Livingston County champion and a five-time class sectional champion from 2005 
to 2009. During his career, from 2003 to 2009, Nevinger's list of accomplishments is almost unheard of. From a victory in seventh grade at the David Stewart Memorial State Farm Wrestling Classic in 2003, to his trip to the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Championship match as a senior in 2009. Nevinger racked up dozens of tournament and invitational victories along the way. The first of his five LCAA and Section 5 titles came as an eighth grader. While that season, he would also win at the Super Sectional Tournament and would eventually take third at the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Championships. It meant a lot, Nevinger said. I mean, that was the ultimate goal, really, since I qualified for states my eighth grade year. Being a state champion was always what the goal was. So those are all meant a lot to me and really carried me on through. During that time, Nevinger was a Section 5 New York State qualifier champion four times and runner-up once. Nevinger also reached to the top of the New York State Public High School Athletic Association podium on two occasions winning titles in 2006 and 2007, while he also had a second-place finish to go with the third-place finish as an eighth grader in the New York State Tournament. During his high school career, among his numerous invitational tournament titles, he was voted Outstanding Wrestler at least five occasions. I started wrestling around four or five, Nevinger said. I wouldn't say it was all that competitive for me. The first couple of years, I didn't really start to get going until after my brother started. Then we did some tournaments, and then after a few years, we linked up with the Paddocks from Warsaw. With Brad Paddock, he kind of took us. We started training out of his garage. We called it Team 10. We traveled all over New York State and doing the tournaments, and it's really where I would say a lot of the growth as a wrestler came from. I don't really know where I would have been without Team 10 and the Paddocks. That's where a lot of us started and kept going through high school, kept training at both Letchworth and the Paddocks, and that really is where it started. According to the New York State Public Health Public High School Athletic Association record book, one of those paddocks, Burke, is the all-time winningest wrestler in New York State, while Ian Paddock is in the top 10, with Paul and Aaron Paddock also among the top 25. Nevinger then enjoyed a storied career at the match for Division I Cornell University from 2010 to 2014. A two-year captain, Nevinger was also a two-time All-American at 141 pounds, finishing seventh nationally in 2011-12 and fifth in 2012-13. He finished his sparkling career with the Big Red, tied for 17th all-time at the university with 113 wins, including 22 by fall. His 42 wins in 2012-13 are tied for third in one season at Cornell. It's definitely a big transition, Nevinger said. I did a year out of community college and wrestled with a club program there, and it helped a lot. We went to some college open tournaments, kind of getting used to the next level. And then in my first freshman year, I was kind of in a starting battle, ended up losing at the end. So I didn't go on to the postseason or anything. But all that just kind of helps you grow as a wrestler and shows you what you need to work on and continue on to ultimately what came to be at Cornell. I ended up starting the last three years and ended up placing at Nationals twice. Nevinger, who was seventh all-time in Section 5 for career wins with 253, according to the New York State Public High School Athletic Association record books. He finished his senior season with a 47-1 record. Nevinger's younger brother, Chris, is also one of the most accomplished wrestlers in Section 5 in New York State history and actually finished his career with seven more wins than his older brother.
and it was that dynamic between the two that constantly drove them, despite the age difference. Yet, Nevinger gives the credit elsewhere. A lot of the credit goes to our parents, Jeff and Kim Nevinger. Obviously, they did something right, Nevinger said. They instilled a lot of good qualities into us, and without them, we wouldn't be doing a lot of what we did. I mean, they took us to the paddocks all the time to practice. They took us traveling every weekend for youth tournaments. It makes it easy for us, a lot easier, when you've been doing it for, I don't know, since you were five. So a lot of the credit goes to them. And yeah, I think they just put a lot of good qualities into us as far as working hard, paying attention, knowing what you need to work on, and everything like that. So I think it's a lot more credit to them than my brother and me. Following his collegiate career, Nevinger spent time helping out at Pittsburgh Wrestling, while he also spent two years as an assistant at RIT before the recent birth of his son. Obviously, Nevinger hopes to eventually get back into the sport and bring his son along with him. But until then, he offers some advice for the younger generation. I think just nothing is more special than having a goal and knowing what you want, working towards it, and seeing that it comes to fruition, Nevinger said. I mean, there's no better feeling than that, and there's a lot of hard work, a lot of hard work, a lot of hours, a lot of people behind you that help you out and to kind of do it for yourself and for them and actually accomplish those goals. That's really, there's nothing better. So figure out what you want to do, whether you wrestle or if it's a different sport. Know what your goal is and put in the work. Go do it, and it's worth it in the end, Nevinger added. And then on the personal side, some of your best friends are going to come from the sports you do. And I'm still close with the Paddocks and Ian Paddock, one of my partners. Same with my Cornell guys in college. You make some lifelong friendships that last a lifetime, and there's nothing better. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Batavia Daily News and the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Former Albert Great Bizon has furthered achievements as coach at Depew. Success breeds success, and when you have a head coach with a track record such as the one Depew girls basketball coach and Elba High School alumni Mackenzie Bizon possesses, incredible achievement is sure to be manufactured post-haste. That's been precisely what has played out through Bizon's first three seasons guiding the Wildcats program, as the former Lancers great has helped her squad achieve an incredible record of 57-10 which includes three consecutive divisional titles and three appearances in the Section 6 Class B1 Final, with two of those trips to the title game finishing with Depew achieving championship glory. This season, after claiming the team's second sectional title under Bizon's leadership, the first since 2021, the Wildcats advanced to the Far West Regional Round for the first time in school history for either the boys' or girls' programs, eventually falling to Section 5 representative an eventual New York State Public High School Athletic Association and Federation champion, Waterloo. For her work at the helm of the Wildcats program this season, Bizon was honored as the 2022-23 All-B Girls Basketball Coach of the Year, which honors the top coach throughout the Buffalo area. This season has been one for the books. This team will forever hold a special place in my heart, said Bizon. From the beginning of the season, this group had brought bought in and gave every practice and game their all. We have a saying for each, for each season, and this season was all or nothing. We decided that if we weren't giving it our all in every practice, every drill, every game, that means nothing. They definitely gave it their all. 
As the coach, I was excited for every practice because this team was driven. They worked hard and had fun. During her time at Elba, Bizon recorded over a thousand career points, was honored as the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Class D Player of the Year twice, and helped the Lancers claim their three sectional titles, along with one, one New York State Public High School championship. It's clear her experience at the highest level has immediately bled into her coaching career, allowing her to best guide the top-tier athletes a strong Class B athletics program, such as the one that resides in Depew, has to offer. I am so thankful I was hired into a program that the girls trusted me and worked hard for me from the second I got there, said Bizon. They believed in me, and I absolutely believed in them. I gave them the tools and the blueprint, and they ran with it. They put the time and effort in, and they built a program that is well-known in Section 6 now. I am just happy the girls are getting the recognition because they absolutely deserve it. I couldn't have done it without the leadership of my three captains, Kaylee Kristoff, Mia Vanelli, and Natalie Witt. I also couldn't have done it without my, co my go-to assistant coach, Dave Kristoff. Over the past three seasons as head coach of a thriving varsity program, Bizon has spent time reflecting on how far she has come throughout the basketball journey and how fortunate she is to have been around so many successful teams. I am very lucky to have had the journey that I've had as a player to coach now, she said. Each coach and team is different, and to be a part of so much greatness it has allowed me to bring all those experiences, lessons, game styles, and philosophies with me. I have so many people to be thankful for and that have helped me throughout my years. I wouldn't be where I am today without them. Go Wildcats. Sticking with basketball, we have a Holly High School alumnus that spent the season on the Bonnie Scout team. Ostrom recalls the Bonaventure adventure. This 2022-23 Bonnie's men's basketball failed to accomplish a level of success it hoped to reach entering the winter campaign, falling short of the Atlantic 10 tournament quarterfinal, finishing the season at 14-18, after a loss to Davidson in the conference tourney. While it wasn't the experience St. Bonaventure and its fans had hoped to enjoy this winter, the journey remained an unforgettable one for Holly High School alumnus Brooke Ostrom, who served as a scout team player for the Bonnies during his freshman year at the university. Through his work on the scout team, Ostrom experienced what it's like to be a high-level collegiate basketball player, providing his teammates with quality looks at opposing teams' offensive and defensive sets leading into the Bonnie's 32 games. Just about every practice day was the same, remarked Ostrom, who finished his career at Holly as a two-time GR All-Star, Ronald McDonald House All-Star, and the school's record holder for most points and three-pointers in a single game, 51-9. We had class, then right after, we would have a three-hour-long practice, usually starting with 30 minutes of film, then around two and a half hours on the court, he continued. Then we would come back and watch another hour of film. Ostrom recalled game days being a bit of an adjustment. Game days are different, especially for away games. We would have practice, then fly out a day early, he said. But home games at 5 p.m., we would start during our individual shooting, and at 6.30 p.m., would start shooting as a team. Ostrom's experience helped elevate what has been a lifetime on the hardwood to another degree while opening his eyes to the game near its highest level. The shift from high school to college is a huge jump, especially Division I, said Ostrom. Everyone moves much faster. Everyone can score, shoot threes, 
even our big men can. At first, it was very intimidating, but once I got used to the pace of play, it became much easier to guard everyone on the team. Ostrom hopes to return in his role for the Bonnies next season. And that completes our reading. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from Friday, April 7th and Saturday, April 8th issues of the Batavia Daily News. Your reader has been Andrea Walton. Thank you for listening.